Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're reading verses 15 to 20. And we're returning to our series in the book of Acts after a month-long break as we considered four weeks in uh, the core values of global mission and mercy and justice. And a few weeks ago, I promised that the next time we looked at Acts, uh, it would be our last time in the chapter. Um, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to modify that promise uh, in light of circumstances that we find ourselves in this season um, of God's providence. Uh, I wanted to slow down in the verses we're going to look at today, verses 15 to 20, and I hope by through our meditation, uh, you'll see why I wanted to slow down here. So wherever you are, friends, would you stand with me as your act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's holy, good, and true word as it's read today from Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me once more in prayer this morning? Father, we know and we believe that all your scripture is inspired. And as a result of that, when we come to the reading of your word, we come eager, we come attentive, we come willing to hear. But Lord, we do admit, whether it's through physical fatigue, the worries and stresses of the world, uh, through different distractions we have, Lord, it's, it's often difficult for us to give to you our ear. So Holy Spirit, we ask at this time, as you minister to us, that you would give to us focus, a heart that is freed from distraction. I pray for uh, the young families out there with children as they are gathering to worship. I pray that nonetheless, as as they are taking care of the children, they would still be able uh, to be blessed. I pray for those who are plagued by thoughts and worries about work and finances and all of the other concerns, that in this moment you would still their hearts as you address us in your word. I pray, Lord, that the meditations from Acts 1 this morning would be fruitful and good for us spiritually. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a friend who is a very strict parent. She doesn't let her children eat much much junk food and particularly sweets. Uh, So on the rare occasions she does, she posts these videos online on Instagram. um, And the way that her children hold and handle their candy is so adorable. Uh, Because they don't get the candy often, when they get candy, uh, they don't want it to end. They want it to last as long as possible. And so they never, ever bite the candy because that would mean it would end all too quickly. So they suck on it till they can get every last drop of, of sucrose and fructose and glucose and sweetness that they can from it. You see, these little children, when they handle candy, Treat each piece like it's the most precious diamond in the world because they don't know when they'll get candy again. 
It's so rare and so special to them. I feel like in one way, that's how we've been handling and treating Acts 1. Slowly sucking, never biting. Getting every last drop of sweetness from it. And we're taking our time in this chapter because there is so little written about the events between Christ's resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. In particular, in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26, there is nothing else in the entire Bible like it. There is no other portion of the Bible that records the events between the ascension and the day of Pentecost. So these verses are so unique, so precious to us, you will never get insight like this, apart from our portion of scripture. And so as we look at today's verses, 15 to 20, here's the gospel truth that I want us to meditate on, focus on, and digest. Draw hope in uncertain times from God's right purposes and his righteous anger. Draw hope in uncertain times from God's right purposes and his righteous anger. So we're going to consider this gospel truth under two headings. God's right purposes, God's righteous anger. And so let's begin with point one, God's right purposes. Well, the scene is being set up for us in verse 15. There we read this. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Now, assuming the role as a leader among the apostles, Peter stands and he addresses this first assembly, this first congregation of this new church. And we're told it's about 120 people. Now, that's important because later in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, we're going to read this. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And the reason Luke draws our attention to this is to show us like those home renovation shows that have a before and after picture Acts 1 is the before picture, and Acts 2 is the after picture. That the church has grown by God's miraculous power and the moving of his Holy Spirit from 120 believers to 3,120 believers. God plans to use and do a mighty work through his church. Now, Peter stands before these 120 believers, and this is what he says in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, Peter is referring to Judas Iscariot's betrayal against Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember that moment of betrayal, this eventually led to Christ's arrest and then his eventual crucifixion. Now, some of you may be familiar with betrayal in your own life. You've been lied to before. You've been cheated on. You've been backstabbed. And you know it hurts. You know it's awful. But Judas' betrayal was on a whole new level. He betrayed Jesus, who he lived with and followed for three years. They had shared in every kind of celebration and experienced every kind of suffering together. Judas had witnessed Jesus's wisdom. He had heard Jesus's teaching. He had experienced Jesus's power through miracles. And yet in his betrayal, he led the author of life to death. Now, if you really think about it, what could be more evil, more treacherous, more wretched than selling out the savior of the world for a bag full of coins? Now, by mentioning this episode, Peter is directing our minds to think about that devastating moment in history, Judas' betrayal. 
But listen to what he says about it. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Here, Peter is referring to the fact that in the Old Testament, there were prophecies and there were predictions that Judas would sell Jesus out. You see, later in verse 20, he goes on to say, for it is written in the book of Psalms, and he references two Psalms. But more specifically, look again at verse 16, where Peter says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. You see here, Peter is identifying David as the author of these prophetic Psalms. And from that, we learn that these prophecies of Judas's betrayal were about a thousand years old because King David existed a millennia before Jesus came. So so think about that. As, As much as Judas chose in the greed and evil of his heart to betray Jesus, this had been predicted and prophesied and planned long before Judas was ever even born. And then notice again, Peter says that King David spoke only by the Holy Spirit. So it was really the Spirit of God who prophesied these things. That means the plans originated with God, not with man. And it originated with God because it was God who sovereignly and mysteriously purposed this to happen. Even Judas's incredibly wicked act was all God-ordained and a part of his providential plan and purpose. Now, that's shocking that one of the most tragic, terrible events in all of history was not only part of God's plan, it was a crucial part of God's plan. That somehow, in a way beyond our comprehension, God purposed to work something good and right for his people out of something so evil and wrong against his one and only son. Now, here's the point. Out of his own suffering and loss, God was able to work out our salvation and life. Now, it may be tough to swallow, but we must know that it was not a surprise to God that Judas betrayed Jesus and handed him over for crucifixion. These plans and schemings of Judas did not catch God off guard. God didn't receive a live update about Judas's decision and then begin scrambling to work out some kind of good from Judas's planned evil. No, no, no. God as the sovereign Lord of the universe was in control the entire time. His divine purpose was never once thwarted or disrupted. And this means Judas's plan was not contrived and executed while God was temporarily away from his throne or God was taking a nap dozing off in heaven. Even while Judas was planning this scheme, an act of betrayal, never for one second did God let down the reins of history or take his hands off the steering wheel of the universe. Rather, in spite of Judas's great evil, God's right purpose was being fulfilled as he had always planned. And that's why it says very importantly, the scripture had to be fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled because it was God's purpose and God's plan for it to be fulfilled. Now pause and think about what that means. It means at least this. God's purposes, however confusing or chaotic they are to us, are always right and good. And this is something we need to cling to. 
Right now in 2020, we're living out something of historic proportions. This global pandemic is something future generations will read about in their history books. And as a result of this terrible tragedy, there are so many whose present experiences are suffering. Nobody in this world is left unfazed. And when we go to bed at night and we temporarily forget about all that is happening, on the other side of the world, another person is waking up and facing that reality to a new morning. Every day, the news is showing things getting worse and worse in our country. And as the statistics rise, so do our fears and our worries. And we wonder, is God in control? How does this fit into God's purposes? This virus and what it's doing in the world, it's evil, it's painful, it's terrorizing the world. And yet in the midst of all of this, this little passage in Acts 1 reminds us that we have a God who had a purpose for even the greatest tragedy and evil the universe had ever witnessed. It tells us the God who works salvation out from incredible evil on Calvary, he can and he will work something out from even this. Whether the cross or coronavirus, God is a God who mysteriously and sovereignly always works out his right purpose from wrong things. I think we really need to know this truth, especially in this season. You know, I want to confess to you some of my own struggles. You know, this past week, I struggled with so much paranoia. With every cough, every time I felt my throat sore or itchy, every time I blew my nose, every time I felt a little chilly, I couldn't help but think the worst. My mind races there. Fear enters my heart like it lives there. Fear has a key and it makes itself at home in my heart whenever it wants to. And you may have been gripped by similar kinds of fears, experiencing similar concerns, whether for yourself or for loved ones. And the way we combat these fears that dwell in us is to draw our hope from this. Nothing in our Father's world happens outside of his right plans and purposes. God was ruling and reigning on the throne when Judas betrayed his son, when the Jews falsely accused the innocent one, when the Roman soldiers nailed and pierced Christ on the cross. But out of all of that evil tragedy, God brought salvation into the world for his people. You know, when the universe held its breath at the uncertainty of what it was witnessing in the crucifixion, God was working out the most certain truth for all mankind. When the angels were beholding the Son of God left on the cross in utter hopelessness, God was securing for us the greatest and only hope that we can cling to. God always works out his right purposes, even when they are not clear to us, and even when they are not understandable for us. When things are out of our control, don't worry because God has not stepped off of his throne. Even with the coronavirus running rampant around the globe, God still holds its leash in his mighty hand, and it cannot go where he has said no. So in the midst of uncertain times, you can begin to hope and trust in the right purposes of God, that he is sovereign, he is wise, he is good. He is working out a right purpose beyond our comprehension, 
beyond our understanding. So one, draw your hope from this. In uncertain times, God has a right purpose. But secondly, God has righteous anger. God's righteous anger. Now, Peter stops speaking in verse 17. And then, if you notice in parentheses, verses 18 to 19 are Luke's remarks. Luke, as the editor now, decides to butt in and add a little comment. Now, before we unpack this point, this very confusing and strange portion of Scripture, let me explain this. We not only need a God of right, good, and loving purposes, we also need a God of righteous anger. The fact that God is righteously angry is also something for us to hope in. Now, let me explain. I heard this illustration from John Piper once, and I want to sort of change it and modify it for our context in this sermon. But let's say there's a little girl walking down the street. She's walking hand in hand with her father. And that kind of picture, that's a glimpse of the normal Christian life. Christians walk hand in hand with God through Jesus Christ because now they have a restored relationship. And so as this daughter is walking with her father, she looks up at his face and he looks down at her with a smile. And everything about this father is kind and tender and warm. And by his very demeanor and looking at her, she knows, she feels that he loves her. Now, let's say in that very specific moment, a suspicious stranger approaches them and he has a menacing glare with a snarl on his face. The man clearly intends to do something harmful or say something hurtful. So what does the little girl do? She squeezes her dad's hand a little more tightly. And he, as a loving father, responds with a firmer grip. Now, as the man walks closer, he begins to hurl insults and threats at them. And so imagine yourself to be this little girl for a second. What do you do in that moment? You look up at your father's face to interpret what's happening. You look to see how he's responding and how he's reacting. And when you look up, what do you want to see in your father's face? Do you want to see that same kind, tender, warm expression? Are you comforted in that moment of fear by the same face you were enjoying a minute earlier? No, not at all. Of course not. You want to behold his face and see in it strength and confidence and a type of anger that's righteous and anger that defends and protects those he loves. You want to feel in your hand, God's hand gripping you a little tighter. Not a gentle grip, but one that hints that he has great power and strength in him. And in that moment, your father takes a step forward and he positions himself between you and the stranger. He shields your body behind his and he says in a tone that you've never heard before, you better watch what you're saying, walk away, turn around. You see, in that moment, You don't need a father who only ever wears a smile of compassion and care. You also need a father who gets angry for you, who is willing to do anything to protect you. That's the kind of God we need, and that's the kind of God we have. Now, let's see then how we can know that truth from this story. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Let's read this again. Luke writes, now this man acquired, that's Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. Now, you may be familiar with an account of what happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus, uh, because it's recorded for us twice in the New Testament. And I believe most of us are familiar with the account recorded in Matthew 27, where Matthew reports that feeling so guilty about what he did, Judas went and he hung himself. Now, those aren't two contradictory accounts, the account of Acts and the account of Matthew. They are, in fact, two parts of the same event. Judas, in his guilt, went and he hung himself. And after his body lay under the scorching Middle Eastern sun for some time, his body began swelling up. And eventually, when he fell from off the rope, his body hit the ground and his bowels gushed out. Not two contradictory accounts, two parts of the same account. The question, though, is this. Why does Luke choose to focus on this second part of his death? Why does Luke choose to focus on a part different than Matthew? It's because Luke is showing us God's righteous anger in his judgment against evil. Now, pay careful attention to this. Here's Luke's summary of the story. Judas did a great act of wickedness in getting an innocent man killed. And as a result, he ended up acquiring a field as a result of his sin. So hear that again. Judas did a great act of wickedness in getting an innocent man killed. And as a result, he acquired a field. And in the end, he died a terrible, horrible death. Now, these details are told this way because Luke is alluding to another story in the Old Testament that sounds very familiar to this. In 1 Kings chapter 21, we read a story about a king named Ahab, and he really desires a field owned by a man named Naboth. And the way that story goes, by the end, King Ahab does a great act of wickedness and getting an innocent man killed, and he ends up acquiring a field as a result of his sin. Does that, does that sound familiar? And as a result, Ahab dies a shameful death in battle. Now, the two stories are parallel, but what's really important is how the Bible interprets Ahab's death. Listen to what it wants you to know about the way he died. Listen to how the Bible tells you Ahab's death played out in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 25 to 26. Jehu, someone in the story, says this, For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him, against Ahab. As surely as they saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, in the story in 1 Kings 22, when Ahab dies, he dies because a rogue arrow is shot and it pierces Ahab. But the, the author of 2 Kings is saying, oh, don't think that Ahab's death was an unfortunate consequence, a happenstance. The author of 2 Kings chapter 9 is telling us, no, Ahab's death was a result of God's righteous anger against his sin. God was pronouncing judgment against him. Ahab died because God was judging him in righteous anger. And so by drawing the parallel between Judas and Ahab, Luke is telling us Judas's death wasn't also an unfortunate consequence. Judas died as a result of God's righteous anger against his sin. Judas's death was God's judgment because God hates sin and God hates evil. In fact, 
the author Luke chooses to pick up on this theme of God's righteous anger and judgment over and over in the book of Acts. Uh, later, we're going to see in Acts chapter 5, there's a story about a man and a, a woman, husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And these two decide to sell their property in order to give their proceeds away. But what they choose to do instead is secretly keep a portion for themselves. Now, when confronted about this, Ananias, the husband, he lies to the apostle saying that he gave it all. But in response to his sin, Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. You have sinned, Ananias. And the result God's righteous anger and subsequent judgment. So we read in verse five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. A few verses later, his wife, Sophia, comes in. She has no idea what's happened. Now she has the opportunity to tell the truth, but she also lies. And Luke records in verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. What's Luke's point? God's righteous anger, and subsequent judgment. Then in Acts chapter 12, King Herod, he delivers a speech before his people, and they love it so much. They end up shouting and praising him, and this is what they say, the voice of a God and not of a man. And then we read in the next verse, verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What's the point? God's righteous anger, and subsequent judgment. That's the pattern being developed throughout the book of Acts. And so when Luke inserts this detail, this seemingly unnecessary detail for us, what he's saying to the reader is this. Don't be mistaken. Judas didn't sell Jesus out, betray him, and then continue to live a happily ever after life. No, 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 no. God judged him for his sin. God displayed his righteous anger because God hates sin and he hates evil and he intends to do something about it. Now, why am I focusing so much on this point? Because Christians need to know this about our God. God's righteous anger against sin is also good news for us. Now, at first, it may not seem like good news. It sounds rather frightening. It seems like bad news. But it doesn't have to be frightening because for those of us who hope in Jesus Christ, we know with confidence that his anger and his wrath is never against you. See, God's righteous anger means he hates sin. And yes, that means he hates the sin in you. But his anger is satisfied and turned away because his judgment against your sin fell on Jesus Christ who died in your place as your substitute. The reality is that you and I are just as guilty as Judas, as guilty as Ananias, as guilty as Sapphira, as guilty as Herod. Now, of course, your sins are different, but you've still sinned. We all have. And the important difference is this. Through Jesus, we can know that God's righteous anger and his judgment were taken away from us for those who hope and trust in Jesus. And that's the gospel. That's the first part of why this is good news. That when you do this, you know, in walking hand in hand with God, if you look up at his face, he looks down upon you now with warmth and kindness and tenderness. 
that he smiles down upon you. That's good news. But how is that good news that he is righteously angry? Here's why. God's face, although when he looks upon you, is full of warmth, tenderness, and kindness, that is not God's only look. God does not wear that on his face all the time. God is also righteously angry at sin and evil and all the ways in which it plagues his world and his creation. You know why this is hopeful in our uncertain time? Because right now, our world is being devastated by sin and sickness and suffering. You cannot turn on the news and escape any mention of the coronavirus. It is everywhere. And as with any agent of death and destruction, the coronavirus is a result of sin and evil. It doesn't belong in our Father's world. And yet it's leaving its fingerprints all over. Chaos and disorder and grief. And you see, whereas you and I are so helpless that we can only lament and worry, our Father is righteously angry. He does not sit passively nor idly by. I don't know about you, but I don't want to look up at God's face as God is looking at sin, as God is beholding its rampant effects in the world and see that God is still wearing a compassionate, loving smile. I want my God to stare at death and disease and get angry. I want him to grip my hand a little tighter and let me know that he's going to do something about this. I want him to assure me that I have no reason to be afraid if I'm with him. And he does exactly that. You remember that story in John 11 where Jesus' friend, his good friend Lazarus dies. When Jesus goes to visit the tomb, this is what it says in verse 33. When Jesus saw her, that is Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, our English translations tell us Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit, but the Greek word means so much more than that. The Greek word there, when applied to a horse, means that the horse was snorting. It was agitated. And applied to us humans, it means something more like Jesus was fuming. Jesus was angry. Now, how is anger an appropriate emotion while at a funeral of one of your closest friends? Well, B.B. Warfield, one of the greatest American theologians, wrote this in a volume entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. He writes, what John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. He did not respond, he did respond to the spectacle of human suffering, abandoning itself to its unrestrained expression with quiet, sympathetic tears. But the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words again. 
as a champion who prepares for conflict. This is the kind of God he has. Yes, Jesus weeps, but he is also one who is righteously angry at sin and its effects, angry enough to go to the cross in order to prepare for conflict. You see, friends, we have a God so filled with rage at death that he prepared to take death on itself. Taken on the cross, down in that tomb, he wrestled with it for three days, emerging in his resurrection as the victorious conqueror. In his righteous anger, Jesus annihilated sin's ultimate curse, death and suffering. So for those who hope in him, he promises us on that final day, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For he will expel and exterminate it from his world. Friends, you and I need this hope. This is the kind of God we need. As I was writing this part of the sermon, I read on the news that Italy had just reported 919 deaths in a single day. And this week, the United States became the leading country with confirmed uh, cases of COVID-19 in the entire world. I'm hearing report after report about the outbreak in New York City and how they're running low. There's not enough equipment, supplies, not enough space, not enough people to handle the flood of patients coming in. Numbers are surging. The statistics are staggering. And they say that this isn't even the worst yet. And in these moments, it's not wrong to be struck with fear. It's not unchristian or lacking faith to be afraid. Right? We're not at fault for feeling such a way. This is what sin does. But in the midst of this, how can you hope? Where are you finding your hope? Well, let me point you to the face of a righteously angry God. You see, when like a stranger, the coronavirus comes to us with its wicked and destructive intent, look up at the face of your father. And although he looks down upon you with love and care because of Christ, take hope in this. When he looks at death and disease, he does so with anger, fury, and rage. And in that moment, Feel him grip your hand tighter and hear him speak to that unwelcome guest in a tone you've never heard before with might and authority. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, friends, there are two things we're left with, two things to hope in. First, God has right purposes, so even in our uncertain times, we know he is working something out because he is still sitting on his throne. Second, God is righteous anger, and he promises that he will expel sin and its curse from off of his world on the final day when it will be no more. And the time in between as we await, in these uncertain times, we draw our hope from this God. Yes, he's moving and working in mysterious ways. But with our hope in him, we sing, we declare, we confess. God, in you alone do we trust. 
Let us pray.